0: Before we get started, we just wanted to read a quick disclaimer. First and foremost, this is a comedy slash true crime podcast. We are a few guys who like to laugh and crack jokes. We understand the nature of the topic is very disheartening and grim, but our aim here is to bring to light these real life situations so you, the listener, can be more aware of your surroundings and hopefully laugh alongside with us. We will not make jokes about the victims or the families impacted by the unfortunate situations, but we will make jokes about the perpetrator or anywhere we see fit. If you don't believe people should be joking about this subject, or if you are expecting a more serious retelling of the event, or if you do not like commentary and banter on the subject, then this is not the podcast for you.
1: All right. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Octavio. It's a boy, Will. And I'm Brian. And today we are going to be covering the absolute piece of shit that is Richard Speck. So uh, let's just get right into it. Join us in these bloodthirsty times.
2: Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are
1: bloodthirsty times. Mm. what's up everybody how you guys doing this week good
0: uh, how you doing pretty good man
1: pretty good yeah how was, uh,
0: week? yeah yeah well yeah i mean lots going on over here mm-hmm. but how was uh how was mother's day how did everything go
1: it was good um for mother's day i gave my wife like a, a yes day where like if she wanted something that's what we're doing so mm. wherever wherever she wanted to go whatever she wanted to buy that's what we did you're gonna burn down a church yes all right yes cool. absolutely yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> can i buy this new car yes 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 yes
1: Yes? (laughs) question mark
2: 2002 corolla (laughs) (laughs) yes i'll buy you a new quote-unquote car
1: yeah (laughs) it'll be new to you
2: yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right Mm -hmm. yeah so um we just kind of wanted to um just really apologize really quickly for not um getting out an episode yesterday because it was mother's day so we wanted to um basically just you know honor our mothers and you know kind of have the respect for that day so we were all a little bit busy uh so we do apologize for not getting it out yesterday um but we are going to be making that up for today so we're going to be getting that out and so um yeah this episode is going to be pretty cool so you guys uh, hang in there and it's going to be a good one
1: yeah this episode is brought to you by random weather of mississippi because without Mm. it we would not be doing this yeah you would have had Um, to wait an extra six days Yep. yeah Yep. you're welcome so, <laughs> so uh yeah this one is a this is a long one there's a lot to go through um this isn't a very r- ridiculous story overall so uh let's i think we're just gonna jump right into it yeah cool yeah let's all right all right richard richard hey. shut the fuck up richard get the fuck out
0: <laughs> all right yeah he's, they're, they're gone now oh uh, richard the we're penis have, is gone yeah now they're...
1: we got to talk about this other richard i'd rather talk about richard yeah. the penis yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to cut his pay a little not, <laughs> not yeah he's getting, on he's getting out of control yeah yeah uh okay today's story is uh it's actually a doozy for sure this this story is just so it's brutal okay just heads up from the get go this story is just gnarly mm-hmm. so um if you're expecting a fun story like last week the week before don't we're we're back to it all right yeah we're we're yeah, back to murder no,
0: no fun here
1: <laughs> so all right <clears throat> this story This one takes us to Chicago in the year 1966 to talk about a real piece of shit named Richard Benjamin Speck. To to tell this story, I'm going to start at the beginning like I I tend to like to do. I like to start from the beginning of their life and kind of go through everything they went through. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to start at the beginning of Dick's life. Richard Speck was born in Kirkwood, Illinois on December 6th, 1941. That's right. Richard Speck was born one day before Pearl Harbor, mm. was demolished by the Japanese in a quote-unquote surprise attack, and he forced Franklin D. Roosevelt to take out his dick and slap everybody around.
0: Mm.
1: So he actually, I think I heard a quote from him. Uh, that, that Saying, the world, he, 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 I'm going to pull out my dick and slap you all around? Is that yeah, a, is that, that yeah, quote? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I heard yeah. him say, I heard Roosevelt say that, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think I heard Richard, uh, something about Richard Speck saying uh, the world went to shit the day after he was born because from December 7th, which is Pearl Harbor, to the rest of his life, everything around Richard Speck's life was just shit. So uh, despite Richard's later life as a giant asshole, his early life was uh, relatively normal. He came from a home of like law abiding and like deeply religious people, and he was the seventh out of eight children. Holy shit. Eight kids. Eight kids.
0: Yeah. I I grew up in a Mormon family, so I'm used to seeing a family that has like four or five, but eight, like, God damn, dude. Like, can you imagine being in that family or even raising that family? Just that's, that's a task in itself right there. Can you imagine being that woman? Just
1: never not pregnant. John and Kate plus eight. (laughs) yeah i mean yeah being being from a mexican family i don't have a big family but like my dad's family i think he has like 14 brothers and sisters and my mom has like 11 brothers and sisters but i think that's more of like a survival thing like not all of them were gonna make it well that or that (laughs) or what is that like
2: (laughs) (laughs) was the 1800s like yeah it's either survival (laughs) or boredom
1: yeah so uh Probably boredom. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we're gonna be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Richard's older siblings were much older than him, and he barely knew them. Honestly, they, were, they already had their own lives by the time he was, you know, a child. Like uh, I think he was like ten years older than him, something like that. So uh, he he would be heavily coddled by his mother, and she was kind of an enabler because he was the youngest male. You know, he's the baby of the family. He had a, a one younger sister. Like, he had one child who was younger than him, his younger sister, and she would say that he was the best big brother anybody could ask for. Like, they just... It was, so it was him, his little sister, and his mom just all, this, you know, grew up together, and they were best friends. So um, the main reason he was such a mama's boy and had been spoiled rotten by her is that at the age of six in 1957, Richard Speck's father would pass away at the age of 53 leaving Richard incredibly devastated because he had been incredibly close with his father. And really, this would fuck up a lot of kids. Losing a parent is never easy. And, you know, this is the part... We hear about the lives of, like, disgusting and horrible people, like serial killers, and we kind of start to maybe feel bad for them. Like, a lot of these serial killers have, like, stories where their, like, childhood is just fucked up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I just kind of have to assure you that a sad childhood... Will not make up for the horrible shit that these people do, and right. he, Richard Speck, will commit these horrible acts basically his entire life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Richard's parents were very religious, and they were what's known as teetotalers. Uh, well, at least the mom was, and on, I don't know honestly. I'm not sure what that means, what a teetotaler is, but I do know that teetotalers are like staunchly against the consumption of alcohol, mm. and. Richard's dad was a very respectable, hardworking man, but still they were poor and things were not made easier by the fact that they had fucking eight kids to feed. Yeah. But, uh, but he did his yeah, best, you know?
2: Yeah. A, a teetotaler is, uh, or teetotalism is the practice yeah. of, or promotion of complete personal abstinence from alcoholic
1: beverages. Is that all? It's not a religious thing. Is that association with religion? <clears throat> it might be, but they
2: actually have a thing called teetotalism. So
1: it's just Right, so just teetotalism itself is just against yeah. alcohol. Yeah, yep. your like own vegans. practice. Yeah, your okay, own practice cool. against. The yeah, that, consumption. that's kind of that's kind of the gist I got about it from the little bit I read about it. But I didn't know if it was, uh, you know, like, associated with religion, like directly to like maybe a Lutheran or a Baptist. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sure. yeah, I, I guess. Well, Someone out there might know. Just yell at us well, while you're listening to this. <laughs> so it's a damn just, email. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's hard to know what may have been. You know, if if Richard's dad had not died, what what could have been and what could have happened? Um, you know, because he was so er- so young, He was such an early stage in his life that he died. He was six. So who knows what path he would have been on? But I guess it is what it is. You know. Anyway. His mom was so devoted to her lifestyle that one time, one time, literally one time, Richard's dad had drank one beer at a barbecue, and she lost her shit on him. She, she went off. So, yeah, it seemed as though Richard's family had a good thing going, but after his dad passed away, things would never be the same. So, did
0: they say how the father passed away at all? Like, what, So, he was still relatively young at 53, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it just makes... May wonder if it was, like, a stress-related death. You know, if you're the man in charge of a household of eight people and, like, your your views on teetotalism or religious views, whatever it may be, forbid, like, the consumption of alcohol. And so, like, for instance, let's say after a hard day of work or even a week of work, you know, how would you be able to relax? Like, no alcohol. There's kids running around, screaming everywhere. Probably very little sleep and no privacy. I'm mm. imagining, like, you know, what, what was his, like... Sh- outlet of stress release so that's what i'm imagining it was just kind of like a buildup.
1: yeah well okay so i'm a dad of two right mm-hmm. and two kids drive me up the wall and i've been working like 50 to 60 hours this past month and i work saturdays too mm-hmm. and these past two saturdays i've been busy and i have not been able to have a drink with my friends yeah. and i am losing my shit like it is such a stress relief that i haven't been able to do it um and i can't imagine never being able to do mm-hmm. that you know yeah. I mean? <laughs> just like never having that chance so i don't know but i, I think you gotta- i heard it was pouring. a heart attack. I mean, that makes
2: sense. yeah stress, it, was it heart could attack. be a yeah. It it people have heart attacks and like strokes in mm-hmm. relation to stress levels. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: he's uh, still young. Was he fifty yeah. three? Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's that's crazy. You do pour yourself a nice stiff
1: glass of milk. This <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> is mean, what six, nineteen fifty seven. I'm sure he beat. I'm sure he went out and beat some people, you know, or his own kids, or beat a yeah. cow. I don't know. He would go outside and just beat w- a cow. Just go outside and hit something. You
0: know? That's beat another. It's like, sorry, I was gonna. That's another oh, yeah. way of beating the meat. <laughs> I don't think he had to worry about that. I'm sure his wife
1: was always getting it. Yeah, like she was always pregnant. I don't think that's. I don't think that was one of his stressors. Yeah, she's getting plowed down. <laughs> plowed down. Uh, the town in which Speck was born—it was a tiny one, like a one-horse town type of place. Mm-hmm. It was pretty rundown, with like the most prominent buildings being the local churches. There was like two churches that were like the biggest and <laughs> nicest buildings, and that was it. Everything else was like a fifty-year-old shack or something. Yeah. So it was the kind of town where teen pregnancy was, at it was pretty high because ain't nothing to do but drink and fuck, you know. <laughs>
0: cough, Menifee, cough. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
1: anyways a few years <coughs> later <Like I'll> <coughs> <laughs> well you guys got meth out there too yeah <laughs> so a few years after his dad passed his mom took a trip to Chicago by herself where she met a man and quickly fell in love with this man the thing is this man named Carl August Rudolf Lindbergh who by all accounts was the exact fucking opposite of her husband uh He was a hard drinker and had a super long rap sheet that included fraud and duis like a ton of them Mm -hmm. and you know all kinds of just random other crimes uh he had one leg he lost his left leg at the knee i couldn't find how some kind of workplace accident maybe diabetes Um, (laughs) Diabetes. Diabetes. just just beat us i'm sure (laughs) So uh, he was forced to use crutches, or I think he even used a peg leg to help him walk around. I really, I think I heard that he used a peg leg, but I know he had crutches for sure. And when he was drinking, he would be pretty violent, and he was always drinking. So uh, Carl was originally from Texas, and that's where he and Speck's mom would tie the knot in 1950. Carl! <laughs> oh, Carl! Carl! <laughs> So during this time where she was like courting uh, Carl Carl August Lindbergh, whatever his name is, um, she spent a couple years without Speck. Uh, She left him with his older sister in Monmouth, Illinois, uh, while his mom and new stepdad figured out their living situation in Texas. And this also gave Speck time to finish out the school year so he can start fresh in Texas. So he finished out third grade in Monmouth, Illinois, and he lived with his sister. And the time he spent with his sister in Monmouth, Illinois, would be pretty great. I mean, he was just out being like a regular kid and had like lots of friends. They would play outside with them. A lot of, you know, the only complaint he had was that he had been prescribed glasses and, you know, he was, it was hard for him to read stuff. But other than that, he was just a a regular like nine year old just playing outside. Mm -hmm. So now he's 10 years old. And he would be starting fourth grade in a few weeks. And he was forced to relocate to a small town called Santo in Texas. And he didn't know it at the time, but the time he spent with his sister would be the last happy childhood memories he would ever have. His time spent in Texas was like one giant school for hard knocks. Like, after one year in Santo, Carl Lindbergh would relocate them to Dallas where they would live in 10 different homes around Dallas in the span of 12 years.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Oh, and also Carl Lindbergh fucking hated Richard Speck and Speck fucking hated him, which is ironic because Speck would end up becoming just like him in basically every way. He chose to emulate his stepfather, his hard drinking and everything. So it's just really ironic that they hated each other. I think it's a, um,
2: like a subconscious thing. Mm -hmm. If you're around it, even though you can despise whatever they may be doing in your subconscious, it just becomes engraved and you're like, yeah, I mean that this is uh, what I, I'm gonna do. This is the habit that I'm going to f- uh, form yeah. or this is the, the vice that I'm going to pick.
1: Yeah. This yeah I is, suppose. Yeah. This is what he knows. Like my, my stepson, I've known him since he was three and he's 11 now and I can see characteristics of myself and him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's been around me so much that he like says dumb jokes. Like I do the same way it's, it's, you know, I raised him, so he doesn't know anything else, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lindbergh would abuse Speck and constantly threaten him with violence. Carl would play mind games with Speck, which to an 11-year-old is the opposite of good. I don't know if you knew that, but... It's not good for a kid. You mean it's bad? Uh, yeah, that's yeah, the opposite wait, of oh, good, right? You're oh, not I supposed don't. to play mind tricks on kids? No. But it's funny <laughs> because I, I forgot to include it, but uh, actually um, Speck would threaten to steal um, Lindbergh's uh, crutches. Peg? Oh, his peg leg? Crutches. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I hope he stole his peg leg. But he would he, would, he would, like steal his crutches and like threaten to beat the shit out of him with it. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Oh, yeah, man. so... Um, Come all over here, bitch. <laughs> So the evidence of Carl's abuse was written all over Speck's attitude. And by the time he was 12, Richard had his first drink of whiskey and basically never stopped after that. And an eighth grade teacher would describe him as like a loner, but he would never talk back as if it had been like thoroughly ingrained in him that there were dire consequences to talking back. He seemed to not have any kind of feelings and no interest in learning anything the school had to offer his face was expressionless and there seemed to be nothing going on upstairs. Like people say that he would just sit there with his like mouth open, staring at nothing, which honestly reminds me of a coworker. Every time I think of spec, I think of this guy and it creeps me out more because he just sits there it, trying to catch flies. Yeah. Like, like I was working at the top of a ship one time and I look over and um, he's just literally standing there with his mouth open, looking up. And I'm like, dude, uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? he's just like, Oh, uh no nothing. I'm just looking up. All right. What? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go this way now. <laughs> so yeah, just every time I think of Speck, I think of him like that's the person I have in my mind. It just makes it so much worse for me. Anyways, uh for some reason Richard Speck had a debilitating fear of being stared at and would never participate in anything that involved him in any kind of spotlight. In 1955, when he was 14, he was a scrawny but relatively tall kid with a super pimply face, and he had like hoodrat friends, and they would constantly get in trouble. And he was the kind of kid that as long as he had backup or some kind of weapon where he would have the advantage, he would gladly fight somebody or destroy some property to get his revenge. But if he was alone, it's a safe bet he would bitch out. Like, if you didn't have a knife or something to have the advantage, yeah. he would just you would just be a little bitch about everything. Of mm-hmm. course. So, by the time he was 17 in 1958, he had just quit school. He just said, fuck it. I'm in the school of hard knocks full time now. And he would seek out, like, new father figures to replace his own. But the people he found were not the kind anybody should want to emulate. And he became began becoming just as useless and shitty as his stepdad was. In 1961, when he was still 19, Richard Speck had his share of experience with sex workers or really anybody he could get his hands on because I'm pretty sure he was a pretty prolific raper at this point. But his shit ass attitude towards sex and women in general came with its own consequences. And before he was even 20 years old, Richard Speck had fought with gonorrhea five different times. Jesus. It's a lot of penicillin yeah i think i i forgot to mention there's like a few there's like he had other um stds but i forgot what it was but like yeah the prominent one was definitely gonorrhea well yeah um,
2: if you're a pimply freaking loser kid the only people that are gonna bang you are the ones you have to pay them or or you're the ones you rape yeah uh, that too but
1: yeah so that same year at when he was 19 uh, Spec would meet a high school freshman at the texas state fair And that girl was 15-year-old Shirley Malone. Pretty soon after little Shirley, who was four years younger than Speck, was pregnant with Speck's child. And Shirley's mom told him, or I think it might have been his mom, Speck's mom, told him they needed to go ahead and get married since he already done gone and knocked her up. Mm -hmm. So so on January 19th, 1962, the happy couple got married and neither of their parents would show up to the wedding. Hmm. Obviously, after having a daughter and having a wife to take care of Richard Speck, to take care of Richard Speck straightened out. And he did what he had to do to take care of his family. And by take care of his family, I do mean that he was constantly drunk. He would move his family around a ton and didn't go to work at all. Oh, so, like, a, you know, like, a, like a stepdad? Yeah, exactly, like a stepdad. And instead of going to work, he would spend whatever money he stole or, you know, whatever, you know, any crime, any way he got money. Maybe he worked a day. But he would spend that money at the local tavern instead of on his family. And since he spent his money on booze instead of rent, they were constantly getting evicted. He was constantly moving from job to job. And his longest ever employment was like seven months with like a, as a truck driver for 7up. And that was his longest employment like ever. Thankfully, though, they were separated fairly quickly after marriage. Even though they stayed married for roughly four years, uh, they had been separated like basically right away. Uh, Shirley just moved back in with his, with her mom. By July 1962, when his daughter was born, he wasn't there for his wife and for his daughter. He wasn't even aware that she was at the hospital giving birth because he was busy being in jail. Because he had been on a bender with his friends and had been wreaking havoc in public. So he got hit with public intoxication and like damage of property. So he was in jail when his wife gave birth. When he did find out about the birth, he flat out refused to pay or even find work to pay the hospital bill, which is hard to say exactly how much that would have been. But I did a little research and it's estimated to be about $500, which is equal to about $4,400 in today's money for a childbirth. Jeez. Uh, From September 1963 to January 1965, Speck was locked up at the Texas Department of Correction at Huntsville. While in jail, Speck had found his true passion, which was getting shitty prison tattoos. He fucking loved getting prison tattoos. He had uh, such works of art as some writing that said, "I know it was like a tick as a picture of a bird with his wings spread out, and instead of a head, it had a a, a hard dick coming out <laughs> as a head." And he called it his West Texas Dickie Bird. And uh, he also had a tattoo on his arm that said, "Born to Raise Hell." And another that said the word ebb, which apparently meant fuck you in Texas in the 60s. And, of course, what white trash tattoo collection would not be complete without the name of his estranged wife tattooed on him? And just to drive home the point of how weak-minded he was, the reason he loved tattoos is because all of his friends had them. The people he ran with were drug addicts and drunks, and with no respect for the law or women at all, like not even in the least. And by 1965, he had been arrested 41 times with charges ranging from disturbing the peace to burglarizing and most notably sexual assaults. The, the marriage he had with Shirley was obviously tumultuous from the beginning and it was destined to be toxic, like just horrible, horrible. I'll get into it a little bit later, but it was just such a bad idea to get married to Richard. So Richard was a horrible father and a worse husband and would constantly be doing shitty things to fuck with his young wife psychologically on many occasions he would pull up to shirley's mother's house and sit in his car and just full-on make out with other girls while shirley was sitting on the porch just watching him and he would just laugh and mock her telling her there was nothing she could do about it but psychological abuse wasn't enough respect he also abused his family physically and he would beat his wife with not only his hands but he would frequently use a knife and would go so far as to put a knife to her throat. Shirley, however, was not the only person he would abuse. Eventually, his rage would be inflicted onto his daughter. But beatings were not Speck's only form of physical abuse. In Speck's mind, because he was still married to Shirley, he was entitled to her body. Whenever he felt like it, he would have sex with her, maybe up to five times a day, whether she wanted to or not. Actually, let me let me rephrase all that. Richard Speck would rape his wife five times a day. So yeah. he would also play mind games with his mother-in-law and would constantly ask her if she wanted him to take out her husband. And he would make, like, gross advances on her. And he's, he would tell her things um, like, if I wasn't married, I would, you know, hit, you know, hit on you or try to date you. And he would even go so far as to steal a picture of his mother-in-law that he found that was a picture of her in a bathing suit. And he took that picture and he would share it with his friends and he gave his friends their number or her number and she would get a bunch of calls, uh, you know, asking her, telling her that, you know, you look good in a bathing suit, you know, just, just gross shit, you know, just random phone calls are just terrible shit. Um, so that would like he added it to his little yeah, it was definitely, the <laughs> definitely part of the spanking. And actually, yeah, he he would look at the picture and he would tell her, "I never knew I had such a hot mother-in-law." So, Jesus. So after Miss Malone divorced from her husband, Richard would ramp up his bullshit, and on a couple of occasions, he would pull a gun or a knife on her while his friends watched. On one of these occasions, he got on top of her with a knife and he held it to her throat and he whispered in her ear that he was going to kill her and he told her, her ex, he told her to tell her ex-husband what he had done and see if he does anything about it. Like, go ahead, tell him. I don't care. He's not going to do shit about it. The next time he tried it, though, he was alone, and she picked up a 2x4 to defend herself, and he backed off because if he does not have the upper hand, he's a giant coward piece of shit. Feeling pretty good about this encounter, Shirley and her mom went to the court and filed for divorce in the July of 1966. And it went through with any, without any contest from Speck in March of 1967. The very next day after the divorce was finalized, Shirley married a pipe welder. <laughs>
2: Better you <leave> that pipe.
1: <laughs> so, if you, Sorry, ask Richard a, <laughs> if you ask Richard Speck's mom about him, she'll tell you that Speck was a fine young man, but he has his troubles with alcohol. Though she claims he's not an alcoholic. He would just drink with the older men that he worked with because his stepdad was such a mean old bastard and it drove Speck to seek out other men as father figures. But the people he found were no good for him and they led him down this path. So she's like, no, it's not his fault. Just he chose bad company. She would also claim that Speck only had gotten into himself in trouble when he had been drinking. But when he's not drinking, he's a perfectly respectable young man. Seems like she's wearing a pair of heavily shaded rose colored glasses to me. Uh, Because of this, Richard believed that he didn't have to work to earn money or even keep himself out of trouble because he knew that mommy was always going to be there to bail his perfect little baby boy out of trouble. But she's not alone in this. His younger sister had nothing but nice things to say about him and had fond memories of her older brother. And mind you, they're telling this to the press after what he did came out. Hmm. So, in stark contrast, the psychologist at Texas Penitentiary said of him before his release in 1965,
2: Now, Speck was dull and slow, likely to relapse. Should be kept in maximum security
1: because of his emotional, social immaturity. But just like Richard Chase, even though this psychologist was spot on about his assessment of Speck, he was let out and was back on the streets. Exactly one week after being let out, Speck was hiding in the shadows near an apartment complex when a woman arrived home after hanging out with friends in a bowling alley. When she got near enough, Richard popped out and grabbed the woman and held a knife to her throat. If you scream, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) But she screamed Um, anyway. uh, And luckily, a man in a nearby apartment was still awake and came out to check, and Speck just took off. Not even half an hour later, the police arrested Speck, and he, he had a knife just like the one the woman described to them. After the woman positively identified Speck, he admitted to the police that he had done it, but said that he was broke and just wanted to steal her money, but couldn't fully remember the incident because he had been drinking. And this is something we should remember because he's really good at passing the buck. Um, He had seemed sorry for what he'd done, to the police anyway, and he claimed he would have never done it if he hadn't been drinking. He was sentenced to a year and a half, but because of a clerical error, Speck only served about six months of his sentence and he was set free. Now that he had two stints in the pen, Speck was hot stuff. And told anybody and everybody that he had spent time in prison and had turned himself into a mean man who wasn't afraid to go back to the big house. Physically, Speck was a pretty normal looking dude, except that he had noticeable pockmarks all over his face. So that acne turned into acne scars and he just had a horribly like yeah yeah, crater face. Yeah, crater face. Yep. And uh, he has been described as being fairly strong, and he preferred more labor-intensive jobs than menial, like, everyday jobs. Um, When he was actually working, he was very dim-witted, having an IQ of only about 90, and not really good at anything overall. He was, however, very good at criminal activity and getting away with it. Having a characteristic that seems to be prevalent among serial offenders... And that's a knack to be able to charm authority into trusting them or, you know, just playing getting lucky with the legal system, like the getting out a year early. Uh Yeah, just getting lucky. And they have a lot of serial killers and stuff have this knack of just being charming to authority. It's crazy. And we see this shit all the time where people are super dumb when it comes to interacting with everyday people, but super confident and affable when it comes to authority. And it's just something I don't understand at all. I don't yeah. get that. Um, yeah, but, you don't have to be—you have to be smart
2: to have a good, like, shady character. Yeah, you have to be smart to talk your way out of shit, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just seems like a charm that some people have that they just kind of know what to say to not be put in jail. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, so okay, by March of 1966, uh, Speck felt he had outstayed his welcome in Dallas. I'm not sure why it took 41 arrests and over 2 years in prison for him to come to that conclusion, but here we are. Speck wouldn't be leaving without a parting gift, however, and noise was heard behind a local grocery store, and when police arrived to check it out, they found a screwdriver by an open back door. Inside the grocery store, Speck had made off with more than 70 cartons of cigarettes. But Speck was long gone by then, and he had set up shop in a parking lot not even that far away, like maybe half a mile and he was selling the cigarettes out the back of his trunk. (laughs) So the police easily tracked him to this location, but Speck had taken off, leaving his car behind. All the police had to do was check to see who the car belonged to and saw that it was Richard's, and they went to his last place of residence, which was his sister's house, but she informed them that he had not lived there since October of 1965. The next day, his mom and sister escorted him to the bus station, and was headed back to Monmouth, where he had spent the first seven, seven, 10 years of his life, and they were sad to see him go. When he got to Monmouth, he spent a few days at his sister's house who had no idea he was wanted by the police and that he was on the run. His stay was short, and he left to stay with a family friend. Uh, his older brother, who was a carpenter, he suggested he go to work for a friend of his as a carpenter, but steady work just wasn't spec style, And he only worked about two jobs as a carpenter before he was off again, this time going to live in a cheap hotel where he would frequent the local bars and sometimes visit with family close by. Only stopping by for like 15 minutes sometimes. Um, And he would just usually go there to ask for money and then would just leave. He might eat a meal with them, but he, he didn't want to visit. He wanted stuff from them. Yeah. The thing about Richard was that he knew how to adapt to his surroundings and make himself invisible, kind of like blend in with his surroundings and not you know, cause a, was to, uh, not make waves. Right, and he would talk with like a slow, calm, very prominent Southern drawl in a way that put other men at ease because they considered him non-threatening, and that same tone put women at ease and uh, kind of like let down their defenses because he was soft-spoken. Which is honestly terrifying because while he's committing some of the worst crimes, he was so fucking polite and would frequently tell people he wasn't going to hurt them. But that was a lie. During his stay in Monmouth on his own, Richard had been back to his bullshit antics. And on Saturday, April 2nd, 65-year-old Virgil Harris was arriving home late at night after having been babysitting when Speck, who was already inside her home, and had gotten into her house by using a chair to crawl into the bathroom window. Mrs. Harris was not a smoker, but when she turned on the light to her bedroom, she noticed two cigarette butts on the floor, and her stuff had been thrown about, when all of a sudden Speck grabbed her from behind and covered her face with his hand, and then he showed her the knife he was holding. Don't make a sound or you'll get hurt. You'll not get hurt. Then he blindfolded her, and as he was moving her into a different room, he calmly told her, I've killed women before. Take off every stitch of your clothes or I'll rip them off. <laughs> she was trying to reason with him, and she gently put her hand on his on his as they sat there, and she asked him if he was a Christian man. This anger Speck, and he gruffly replied, I came in through the back door. I'm going to stay all night. How long
0: has it been since you've had any?
1: After this, he forced her to the bedroom where he took off his clothes, and while he was undressing, he said, if I don't get what I want, I'll kill you. Two minutes later, Speck had completed his rape <laughs> and spent a significantly longer time using cut-up strips of her clothing to tie her hands and bind them. He mentioned to her having to go to Springfield and to try and get and to try and get him to leave faster. She offered her car to him, but Speck just left on foot. But Missus Harris was a badass, and she managed to wrangle her feet loose enough to make a run for it. And with her hands behind her back and totally nude, she ran to her neighbor's house to get help. And the neighbor found that Speck had tied her hands so tightly together that he had to use scissors to cut her loose. The police were called, and in a huge twist of irony, Mrs. Harris was taken care of by the same doctor who had delivered Speck into this world just 24 years earlier. What the fuck? As the police looked into into this further, Speck was quickly becoming a suspect not only in this rape case, but also in the murder of a young woman a month earlier. Mary Kay Pierce was a 32-year-old who worked at her brother's bar, and she had been found murdered in a hog house behind the bar where she worked, after being missing for five days. Nobody had really noticed she was gone because everybody thought she had gone to visit her boyfriend who lived out of town. But when he said he hadn't seen her, they had informed the police and they found her pretty shortly after that. The reason Speck was fingered for this death is because he had actually built that hog house on one of his rare stints in the workforce. And when he came in to collect his last paycheck, the police were waiting for him to question him about the murder. And in response, Speck had said, No, sir, I sure didn't kill that girl. But the police didn't give up. And they tried to appeal to Spec's darker side by implying she had it coming because she had been known to date black guys, and this is 1966, so it was pretty normal to have feelings about about that, you know. But Spec, yeah. yeah, dating black guys and having opinions about it, yep, everyone was all about that. But Spec kept his cool because lying to authority is his specialty, and he said. Well, everybody to their own kicks, I say, but I don't like the
0: idea. By the way, I'm changing my accent again okay, because I like, i couldn't do with the Irish, so I'm just changing it
1: now. All right. I thought you were going to do it different every time. This. Yeah, oh, all right, all right. <laughs> so after this, he complained that he wasn't feeling well, so the cops made plans to visit Speck at his hotel room. On April 19th, the manager of the hotel saw Speck walking out of the hotel with some bags, and Speck had told him, I'm not leaving.
0: I'm going to the laundromat.
1: Which made sense because he had paid in advance until April 22nd. But when the police got to his room, he was long gone. But they did find the belongings of Mrs. Harris. And this confirmed that Speck had been responsible for the robbery and rape. But not only that, they found evidence for a slew of robberies that had been reported in the area recently. After a month living in the hotel... He was off to live with his older sister, Martha, and her husband, Gene Thornton, who lived in a tiny apartment in Chicago with their two teenage daughters, where Speck would sleep on the couch. This too was short-lived as his sisters, much like his mother, in that she was also a teetotaler and did not allow alcohol in her home, and Speck did not respect those rules. So Gene Thornton took Speck to the NMU, or the National Maritime Union Hall located on the south side of Chicago, where hopeful sailors can find work aboard ships, kinda kinda like an unemployment office that just sets you up with work and that work could be by the day or months or weeks, you know, it could be just months at a time, maybe a year, depending on the purpose of the ship you catch. Since Vietnam was still raging half a world away, a lot of ships were needing people to help deliver cargo to troops. And this was exactly the type of job Gene was hoping Speck could get just so they could get him out of their hair for an extended period of time. And, you know, he can make some money while he's out there, you know, make use of himself, learn how to be a man, that kind of stuff. Uh Um, Hopefully get shot in Vietnam. Yeah. When Speck and Gene got to the Southside Union Hall, they discovered that he needed certain uh, certifications. He needed to obtain, like, a Siemens card in order to register him for a ship. Um they set out to get like license to work on any ship weighing like a hundred tons or more. They needed like a two by two picture, um, kind of like a, what's it called? A a passport passport picture. Yeah. Yeah, Like a a passport picture. Um, and there was like a local photographer that got that done. Like, you know, everything was in that area to make it easy to get work. You know, everything was like within a block of each other. Um, then they also registered him with the coast guard since they, you know, they run the waters in Michigan and stuff. So they required a birth certificate and a thumbprint Which is important. And he spent less than a week at sea, (laughs) even though he was scheduled to work for like a few weeks. And he had to be airlifted by the Coast Guard because four days into his trip, he had an emergency appendectomy. Wow. And and he spent most of his time recovering. But either way, the time he did work, he was constantly drunk and would threaten his shipmates, like with knives and, and whatever else he had on hand. But They said when he wasn't drinking, he was a nice enough guy and pretty hardworking. You know, he liked to do the harder stuff, the heavier stuff, the heavy lifting. Yeah. So when he wasn't drinking, he was a perfectly normal dude to them. So during this time aboard this ship, he made a friend out of his bunkmate and he would spin all kinds of tall tales and his roommate would just listen. So Speck got real comfortable with him and he ended up telling him all about Judy Lacanini, the nurse he met who took care of him after his appendectomy and he would frequently send letters to her and would tell her he loved her and he wanted to go skiing with her. But Speck didn't know how to ski. He bragged to his bunkmate that he was leading her on and he was buttering her up so he could have sex with her and take her money. He ended up shipping out twice with this ship. And finally he was fired after the captain had enough of his drunken violence. After leaving the ship, He immediately went to a bar and just got fucking hammered. And then he drunk dialed Nurse Judy and told her he had been fired after a fellow shipmate had called her a whore. And he had to defend her honor. And she believed him because Judy is just a genuinely good person. And she chose to see the good in people. So she offered to help him get onto another ship in Michigan's Upper Peninsula because she felt bad that he had lost his job over her. Judy had been fresh off a divorce and wasn't looking to date, but Speck was persistent. And a week later, Judy was picking him up from the train station and she helped them get like local accommodations. Weirdly, though, they spent a ton of time over the next few weeks. And like, unfortunately, Judy had taken a liking to him and she would never stop trying to help him better situation in life.
2: So persistency
1: is key. I'm not going to take life advice from respect, <laughs> <laughs> But yes. Okay. <laughs> Just, <laughs> well, but, you know, you, but yes. I guess. But even like, uh, what's that movie, The Notebook? I mean, that's what that uh, Ryan Gosling did, right? He never gave up. And I guess back in the day, no was not an answer. <laughs> you
0: know what I mean?
2: No didn't like, actually mean no. Yeah,
1: no did not mean no back in the day. Apparently.
2: Sorry, I, The Notebook?
1: Yeah, The Notebook. Yeah. Okay. You haven't watched it. Mm, is the ending something about them like kissing in the rain? No, the ending is them holding hands while dying. Oh well, as as old people, it's a really good movie. If you haven't seen The Notebook, it's really really good. It's actually Will's favorite movie. He just doesn't want to admit it. Yeah. He, he watches it, it every it. night before he goes to sleep. I'm, I'm,
2: I'm playing coin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, where was it? Okay, so Judy, uh, she showed him all the local listings for ships and like other jobs, but. Spec wasn't interested in any of that. He chose to be candy with Judy and told him about his prison stay and losing custody of his daughter. And he even told her that he had laid hands on his wife on two different occasions. But, but, it was okay because she was asking for it. And in his words, Hey, she had asked for it. I don't hit anybody unless they ask for it. <laughs> and somehow... This honestly just endeared Judy, and it's hard to blame her. I mean, Speck was a gentleman to her and had been throwing money around to treat his girl to all kinds of fun stuff, even though sometimes Judy paid. And one day, Judy wanted to hang out with him and meet up for like a day date. But Speck said he couldn't because he needed to go find work. And he he needed money. You know, he was running out of money. Um, But Judy, for some reason, was excited to see him. I mean, he must have put on the charm with her because she was like, trying to date him type of thing. Yeah, like fawning over him. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, you know, come hang out with me for the day. You know, I, before I go to work, I got plenty of time. We can go on a date date, like a picnic or whatever the hell they did in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And um and she was like, look, I'll give you $80 to help you out until you find a job. Just come hang out with me. And she's like, I don't I don't even expect you to pay me back. Like if you want to, yeah, that's fine. But I you know don't feel like you have to. And um later after their day date, she went to work. And when she got off work, she got home to find a note that said. I'm trying to think of which
0: accent I want to do now. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Freeman, I've taken a
1: job. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Margaret Freeman. (laughs) But Judy would never see or hear from Speck again until she saw the horrible headlines from July 14th. The crazy thing is, despite his braggadociousness, when talking to his shipmate, Judy Lackanimi says Speck never made any attempt to sleep with her and was always very respectful to her even when he was drinking and would constantly apologize because Speck knew that Judy didn't like it when he drank so he would just apologize for being drunk. But if you ask Speck about it, he'll tell you he only knew her for 10 days and in that time he slept with her 5-6 times and he only took off because Judy wanted to get married
0: oh all right <laughs> what's the next one what's all right you guys give me the next one arnold
1: smiegel <laughs> i can't do this
0: arnold i told her <laughs> <laughs> well, i told her i think about it and i did i thought about it and i bought a train to get out of town A <laughs>
1: kid. well done good it's job many, well done sir too many accents dude <laughs> Uh, After this little tryst, on July 10th, Speck found himself back in Gene Thornton's car, heading to the south side docks of Chicago. Because Gene thought Speck was too old to be out here not working and not taking care of his family and always drinking and fighting, Gene Thornton thought of Speck as a failure and wanted him to get his shit together. So Gene was driving him back to the National Maritime Union Hall to find a job. And honestly... Speck thought the same thing about himself at this point in his life Richard Speck is incredibly depressed about his position as a man as a failed husband, as a failed father who was just on the run from his crimes like he committed them not even a week earlier and he hated that he didn't have his family or a place of his own to keep his family but that doesn't mean Speck was willing to do anything about it so he's at this point about to implode like you know, he's he hates oh, himself. He he hates himself. He hates everything around him, uh-huh. and is starting to build up. From this point on, so July tenth is from is the start of the end, um, because just three days later he would explode. So, when they got to the south side, Speck wanted Jean to help him find a room, and then he wanted Jean to pay for it because he felt embarrassed having to carry both of his suitcases into the Union Hall. But Gene wasn't having it, and Gene insisted that they go straight to the Union Hall and try to find work. And when they got there, they discovered that there were two ships ready to go. So they submitted Specs' application, but the positions went to seamen who had much more experience and an overall better standing. Because I think his last ship, uh, when they fired him, uh, it, it was just like, heavy drinker causes trouble. Like, that was basically it. So they look at that along with how much experience you have. So, you know, they just went with the better man. Uh So at this point, they told Speck to try again tomorrow. So Gene gave him $25 to hold him until he got onto a ship. At this point, Speck is, like I said, basically a ticking time bomb because he just, he thought he was going to get a job on the ship and now he's been denied once. So he's, the fuse is coming down, like little by little. So Speck was off to explore the south side of Chicago by himself. In 1966, the south side of Chicago was an industrialized area where people can find work at the shipyard as a welder or a builder or find work at a warehouse. Like Times were good, and the restaurants and bars were open around the clock to accommodate for like the third shift workers uh, that used their half-hour breaks to come, like have a beer and a burger or play some pool, which, speaking as a shipbuilder myself, I cannot imagine for the life of me having enough time or energy to leave the shipyard and have a burger and a beer during my half hour lunch. Like mm-hmm. it's just not, it's just not happening. I don't know. It's a different era, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. it take like a half an hour just to walk to your car mm-hmm. from
0: like the fucking yes, shipyard.
1: That, that that's, a, that's most of it. Yeah. So I, it takes about 15 minutes from the ship to my car. So I'd walk to my car and then walk back. <laughs> so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> just terrible. You just, yeah. You got put a,
2: Yeah. You gotta put a cooler in your car. Yeah, not
1: not only that, like uh, they're at my job. They're super strict. Like if you come off the boat too early, when it's if you come off like eleven fifty, 1150, uh, eleven fifty eight, or I mean ten fifty eight, you can get in trouble. Like they could write you up for not being in your work area, which is really dumb. But so I, I don't. I would have to wait till you know. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't. Yeah. I don't get different different time though. Different people. Mm-hmm. So uh, this industrialized area attracted a certain crowd of people which was like a rougher, more rugged crowd, obviously with you know, the, the labor workers. And it had people coming from all over, like all over the US, all over the world to take advantage of the work available. So there were tons of what was called uh, a flop house, which is a very cheap room with few amenities. And you didn't go here because they were five-star establishments. These were like extended stay places that put little effort into cleanliness and They were basically like, here's a bed, like, be grateful. And they didn't ask questions. If you walked up and said, I need a room, as long as you had $9 a, that it cost for the week with a $1 deposit for the key, they didn't care why you were there. All you have to do was say, my name is Dan Cooper, and I need a room. <laughs> and, they, and they'd be all like, your name is Dan Cooper? And you'd be all like, yeah, my name is totally Dan Cooper. And you can take your parachute and your 200000 up to your room and no one would bother you.
2: That's where he's at.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you solved it
1: assault <laughs> He's at a flop house in Chicago.
2: Yeah, even though this was like what,
1: five years early? Yeah, early? five years early. Yep. Yeah. So these flop houses and the nearby bars is where you could find Richard Speck at any given moment. Because this is where he fit in. You know, this is mm-hmm. the dregs of society type of thing. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's not only hard. CD underworld. Yeah, CD right underworld. It's like cyberpunk 100% of the time. Yeah, except about so, the cyber. Without the punk, <laughs> without anything, <laughs> without any without in fact, of, it's, it's the not punk. even cyberpunk. It's
0: not even anything like it. I'm sorry, so no.
2: <laughs> Now, in retrospect, it's nothing like cyberpunk, right?
1: But it's so much like cyberpunk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when it's... he first arrived, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just gonna keep going with a stupid shitty <laughs> joke. <Okay>. Continue. <laughs> You can. Go no, ahead. You got the floor. No, I was going to be like, it's cyberpunk
2: without any of the cyberpunk. <laughs>
0: without the dick tits. Yeah, without, without
2: the dick tits.
1: Oh. All right. So, um, all right, there I am. <clears throat> when he first arrived, he didn't know where to go to find any of these places. So Spec just kind of wandered around south side of Chicago and he would ask like gas station clerks if like he could leave his suitcases with them and maybe wash up in the bathroom As ugly as Speck was with his heavily pockmarked face and awful tattoos, he was like a fairly clean cut dude and was constantly changing his outfit and shaving and slicking back his hair just to look nice and neat. But during his exploration of the city on his way back to the union hall to try to find work on a ship, he again passed three townhouses that were owned by the hospital.
0: Yeah, and these townhouses uh, were used as a dormitory for the women Uh, who attended the nursing program like at the south side of Community Hospital, located about a mile away. So these townhomes or townhouses served as like an overflow for the regular dormitories and were inhabited by the nursing students and nurses from a Filipino outreach program. And in one of these townhouses, eight unsuspecting nurses lounge about as if all was normal.
1: Yeah, they chose the Filipinos uh, because it, it, they were already had a really good nursing program in Filipino. Like these were already nurses, yeah. And they, um, it was like a, a win-win for them. Like the nurses got to go see the world, uh, the U.S. or whatever they were sent to um, mm-hmm. as an exchange, and the U.S. benefited because it gave them nurses during a nurse shortage. Yeah, so, the Vietnam you know, War. So yeah, yeah there was a nurse shortage, so they just brought them from the Philippines. They
2: they still. I don't know if they do it to this day, but I know mm. um when I first started in EMS, so like 12 years ago, um that was a big thing as well.
1: Oh yeah, also, uh Happy Nurses Week. Yay. Oh yeah, Happy Nurses
2: Week.
0: Yeah, Happy Nurses Week. Um and to kind of, you know, put in perspective like these townhouses were essentially kind of like sororities for like the nurses that were attending this program. So, um it was, you know, just a you know, they would all gather and Congregate in these town townhomes, and you know that's where essentially they lived. But there could be anywhere between eight and ten people in a house. So now, before continuing, we do want to take a, a bit of time to commemorate the victims, uh, you know, from this horrible incident. So the next eight names you hear were all nursing students who lived in this townhouse, and we just wanted to remind everyone that these were real people with real lives, and we should remember them as such not just as the victims of the murderer. So with that being said, we'll start Mm -hmm. with uh, the first one
1: here. Her name was Mm -hmm. real quick. I I spent an hour talking about Richard Speck. So I I really wanted to emphasize that it's not just about Richard Speck. Like these people lost their lives and we want to recognize them as human, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, absolutely. Trying to to balance it out because I felt talking about Richard Speck is shitty. So, you know, Mm -hmm. just to balance it out and give perspective. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that these were actual people. So the first one is Nina Jo Schmael. Now, Nina was 19 when she announced to her family that I'm going to nursing school. And it was the early 1960s before the flowering of the women's liberation movement, an era where, you know, when it wasn't assumed that women would leave the house to work and those who did had few choices like teacher, secretary, stewardess, nurse. Now, it took Nina a while to choose nurse. Now, after graduating from Glenbard Township High School in Glen Ellen in 1959, she worked as a secretary, but didn't like it. She did, however, like her volunteer job at an elder care facility known as the Poor Farm. And she made friends with her patients and even bought them Christmas presents and everything. So her experience there wedded her interest in nursing. So did the fact that her brother, John, who was four years older, was studying to become a doctor. Now John and Nina grew up on an acre of land near suburban Wheaton, uh, which is a remnant of the Schmel family farm. Uh, their family or their father was a, a cement finisher descended from Germans, and their mother was of English and Czech descent, and they stayed at the home to take care of her children. Now John and Nina walked together to one room queen bee schoolhouse carrying tin lunch pails. Now, years later, when Nina moved into the townhouse where she died, she installed an old Schmell Road street sign in her bedroom. Now, growing up, Nina was a good student, well-liked, quiet, but with a sense of humor, and she loved Elvis, cats, and also the color pink. She wasn't the prom queen or valedictorian, valedictorian, her brother recalled, she was kind of your average good kid who was really dedicated to being a caregiver. By the time Nina entered nursing school, she was three or four years older than most of her classmates, and worried that she was over the hill. But she came with a coveted distinction. She had a car, and not just any car, a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air convertible in pale yellow, Colonial cream, I guess was the name of the, uh, the paint color, which was a gift from her father uh, who could barely afford it and who himself drove a rundown pickup truck. Now, in one of the slides that her brother recovered from the basement, uh, a young man crouches next to the Bel Air washing the white walls, smiling to the camera. He was the man Nina planned to marry, but only after graduation. Marriage was prohibited for student nurses, so was pregnancy. Jewelry, makeup, and nail polish were forbidden on duty. Now, nursing school, as one former student describes it, was like a cross between con- convent and boot camp. Now, the student nurse, the student nurse's white and pale gray uniforms had to be strictly starched, their crisp white caps perfectly placed, uh, which is a tough trick on a bouffant of hair. Now, no scuffs were allowed on their white saddle shoes either. During their first two years, uh, all the nursing students were required to live in the dorms uh, attached to the hospital. But in their third and final year, in the hot Chicago summer of 1965, Nina and five others moved into one of the three townhouses at the hospital, rented on East 100th Street. Now, it was a small and nothing fancy, like one bathroom and three bedrooms upstairs. There were some bunk beds and some singles and Their first floor consisted of a living room, a powder room, and a kitchen. The close quarters helped turn most of the women into close friends, and for all their dedication and discipline, they loved pranks. In one of John Schmel's slides, Nina poses wearing nothing but a white towel and her nurse's cap, holding a hypodermic needle and pretending she's about to give one of her housemates a shot. The kitchen was the townhouse social club, a place where Nina and her roommates congregated to eat study and listen to the record player from the nearby living room and on one kitchen wall hung the only phone uh, the kitchen door opened onto a narrow alleyway where nina parked her bel air and where a hospital shuttle picked up and delivered students it was that door that a student from a neighboring ta- townhouse approached at 12:15 a.m. on july 14th in search of bread for a late night sandwich she rang the bell no answer. She went home, not knowing that a little more than an hour earlier, a drifter with a knife, a gun, and a history of violence had broken in and was holding her friends hostage upstairs. By the time he left around 3.30 a.m., eight women were dead, some stabbed, some strangled, and some were both. Uh, when John Schmell talks about what happened that night, he uses the words anger, rage, and mourning. He also uses the word waste, what a waste that nina and her friends weren't able to give the world everything they had to give or enjoy its pleasures he wondered what it would have been like to grow old with a sister his sister what would nina who died at 24 look like today at 79 he hates knowing that anyone who googles the name nina schmell lands on the name richard speck that's why he and his wife established the nina joe schmell scholarship fund at wheaton college Nina's name and hers alone is now attached to something good. It's why he wants a 50th anniversary commemoration that reclaims all the women's names and their lives. Now, Peter McNamee washes the 1957 Chevrolet owned by his girlfriend, Nina Jo Schmael, who he planned to marry after graduation circa 1966. He has found another way as well to hang on to his sister's hopeful spirit, On some summer days, because it gives him a warm feeling he can't entirely explain, he drives around top-down in a car he bought a few years ago. It's a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air, convertible painted in colonial cream.
1: Yeah. Um, I just want to say like the, the girls, there was like five Americans and three Filipinas that were in the house at night and they did get along. Um, for the most part, they were cordial to each other, but they had like a, a divide between them, mm-hmm. uh, a cultural divide. So the, the American girls stayed to themselves for the most part, and the Filipinas cooked their food and had their spicy food and you know their lumpia and all the stuff they cook with each other. But uh, there was a little bit of divide because the American nurses were um, student nurses while the Filipinas were paid registered nurses. So they got paid to live in the house, and the student nurses were kind of with their meager earnings, Mm -hmm. they had to struggle a little bit. So there was a little bit divide there, but overall they were cordial and said, hi, you know, they're roommates, but there was a a little disconnect. Yeah. Not, not much though, but it it does come into play later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're
2: going to move on to Suzanne Bridget Ferris, who was born September 10th, 1944 in Chicago. And she grew up in a quiet neighborhood called Fair Elms on the far south side. Her father, John, who was in the process of becoming a Catholic priest, when he changed his mind and married Mary, and together they would have three children, Suzanne, her sister, Marilyn, and her brother, John Jr. Now, John Jr. keeps a picture of his sister in his wallet in a plastic pouch next to the prayer card from her funeral. And it was a typical black and white 1950s school photo with her wearing what looks to be her brownie uniform. And when John thinks back to his childhood growing up with Susie, the kitchen always comes to mind. It's where the family's cookie jar was located, a white jar with the word cookie on the side, and it's spelled C-O-O-K-Y. And this is ingrained in his memory because cookie was a name his father gave Susie. And he distinctly remembers after she died, his father weeping and moaning, cookie, cookie, cookie. She grew up poor, but had a love for clothes, and was considered the pretty, perky, and popular girl in school. And she would often make her own clothing, as the family didn't have enough money to afford anything other than the necessities. And she was an average student at Aquinas High School, and was turned down by Loyola University. And so instead, she attended college night classes downtown and was able to pay the tuition by working as a file clerk for people's gas. She would eventually enroll in nursing school, something that she had a knack for. And even though it wasn't her dream job, she had this uncommon ease with dying and and death and was able to deal with the human body even after death, all the messiness. And John would see his sister for the last time when she was 21, and he had just came home from a track meet carrying all of his victory medals. And Susie was visiting her boyfriend, Phil, who John liked because he was super nice to him and had a pretty awesome sailboat. It just so happens that Phil was also the brother of one of Susie's nursing classmates, Mary Ann Jordan. Susie would invite Mary over to the townhouse to spend the night, and they were the last women to arrive on July 13th, 1966. John Jr. still gets depressed a week before and a week after when July 14th rolls around every year. He struggles to find the words to explain to his own three children what happened to his sister and who she was. He has yet to go in depth on the details of that fateful night to his children or his other sister, Marilyn. How do you even bring up something so terrible and discuss it and with who and on what occasion? Now he would run into a woman that went to high school with Susie and shared a story with him that he had never heard. She was unable to buy a prom dress which to a girl in high school, it's one of those, you know, the biggest moments of your life up to that point, going to prom. So Susie actually made one for her. And it reminded him of Susie's kindness. And to be able to speak to someone in that way gave him great comfort. Now, his niece is now the keeper of the family cookie jar. And he has made her aware of why she can't get rid of it. Cookie must live on oh man yeah so we're moving on
0: to the next uh we're going to be talking about Patricia and Matusek Matusek Matusek. sorry I didn't know how to Matusek now often after a day of classes at Fenger High School Pat Matusek walked to Roseland Community Hospital to see her cousin Tommy she was 14 he was 15 he was dying She'd bring him water, fluff his pillow, hold his hand, tell him that she loved him. And on many of those days, she walked home crying, yet it was her uh, it was her afternoons with Tommy that made her think she could be a nurse. Patricia, or Pat as they called her, lived above Joe Matusek's club, the tavern her father ran in the 10800 block of South Michigan Avenue. Next door was a funeral home run by Arlene Baskey's dad, Uh, Between their second floor apartments stretched a low flat roof, and Pat and Arlene often ran across it to tap on each other's windows looking for a playmate. Now, Pat was born in 1945, the year World War II ended. To Joe and Bessie Matusek, both of Czech descent, uh, in those post-war years, most residents of Chicago's far south side were white and working class, still close to their immigrant roots and it was the kind of neighborhood where kids walked everywhere and went home for lunch, though Pat took sandwiches to school because her mother worked during the day while her father, who ran the bar at night, slept. In their tight-knit neighborhood, Pat and her friends stood on corners during the fall to help her dad sell peanuts for the Kewanese club. Uh, in winter, they went sledding. Life, though not idyllic, felt safe. By the time Pat was five, she had another best friend, also named Arlene, Arlene Kubasek. Uh, Kubasik Uh, not sure how to pronounce that one and through the years the three girls laughed a lot together they laughed through their way through uh, Catholic elementary school and on through Fenger High where Pat was on the uh, titanet pom-pom squad they laughed as they sorry this is really (laughs) they laughed as they sunbathed on the roof between the tavern and the funeral home watching the people and the cars down on Michigan Avenue which they called the av and pat and arlene kubasic could hardly stop laughing on the night during their high school sophomore year that they went to the drive-in with four other girls then sat in the car eating popcorn and rolling their hair on giant curlers on the way back they got lost 40 miles from home when they spotted a gas station they were reluctant to stop for directions because their curlers made them look like creatures from mars Pat looks at us and says, oh, for crying out loud, Cupastic recalled one day not long ago, sitting with her old friend Arlene Baskies. She gets out of the car, slams the door, and found out from the guy we are where we are and how to get home from there. That's how they remember Pat. Sweet, assertive, funny, full of life. The two Arlenes still laugh easily when they think of Pat, but the memory of her death brings them quickly to tears. "'It hurt everyone down to your soul "'and your being and your bone,' Kubasek said. "'You didn't think you'd ever stop crying.'" Basky says that for a while she slept with a flashlight or a knife, but eventually determined not to raise her children in fear. Went through five years of therapy to retrain her thinking. "'I think I was successful,' she said, "'Kubasek, who is 71 and Basky's 68. "'Seeing them together,' It's hard not to wonder what Pat would be like at their age. Would she still love water ballet? Be married, divorced, retired? She probably wouldn't still wear her hair in a perfect flip. Pat was twenty on the hot evening on Wednesday, july thirteenth, nineteen sixty-six, when Arlene Kubisek dropped her off at the townhouse well before Curfew, which was ten thirty PM. Except the two girls or the two nights a week the women were allowed to stay out till twelve thirty AM do you want to come in for coffee pat asked kubasek said no she was too hot too tired they you know they'd see each other friday go hang out on rush street and on the gold coast she waved and waited for pat to go inside the next morning pat's mother called kubasek worried the radio said some nurses had been killed the police wouldn't give out any information had pot had pat gotten in okay the night before kubasek hurried to her car and drove to the townhouse. Police, cameras, gawkers were everywhere and someone said something about the bodies. She knew before she was officially told. Pat was dead. The Matuseks wanted Pat to be buried in the clothes she would have worn for her upcoming graduation, so on the day after the murders, Pat's sister, Betty Jo, asked Kubasek for a favor. Would Kubasek Go with her to the townhouse to get Pat's nursing cap and uniform. Police escorted them inside. It was terrible, Kubasek said, remembering what she saw. The police didn't rush them, but they left as fast as they could. Betty Jo had one more request. She wanted to do Pat's hair and makeup for the funeral. Would Kubasek help? She wanted to make her sister look like her sister, Kubasek said, choking up on the word sister. Together, they helped prepare Pat's body for burial at the funeral home run by Arlene uh, Arlene Baskies' dad next door to Joe Matusek's bar. 50 years later, Pat Matusek's two best childhood friends are the primary custodians of her past. Her mother, Bessie, passed away in 2005, her father who had become a familiar figure on TV with his cane in his wheelchair as he protested the possibility of Richard Speck's parole, died in 1990. On Pat's birthday, Betty Jo, who was married, uh, whose married name was Purvis, died in 2015. Though she rarely talked to her two children about what happened, she made sure her sister Pat lived on through her daughter, to whom she gave the name Patricia Ann. Childhood friends of Patricia Matusek share memories with Matusek's niece, who never met her and Patricia Matusek was murdered along with five fellow nursing students and two visiting nurses in 1966 on Chicago's south side.
2: We move on to Valentina Passion. She was born February 14th, 1942 in the Philippines in the town of Jones, roughly 240 miles away from Manila. Where she grew up with five other siblings. In May of 1966, she would board a plane plane to Chicago. Her family called her Tina, and she graduated a year before in the top 10 of her nursing school at Manila Central University and promptly planned her trip to the U.S., but was forced to postpone twice due to passport problems. The delay, in the words of one of her sisters, was a sign that God didn't want her to leave. Tina was part of the nursing exchange program between the U.S. and the Philippines. It was an era for Filipinas to learn new things, make friends, and most importantly, to work. The U.S. was in dire need of nurses and the exchange program helped relieve the shortage. And much like Tina, the exchange nurses sent most of their money back home to their families who were less fortunate. It was hard to get used to chilly weather of Chicago as she grew up in a pretty tropical climate, so when her plane landed on May 9th, 1966, it was a bit of a shock. That following Monday, she would arrive at the townhouse rented by her new employer, South Chicago Community Hospital. She would be joined by two other nurses that were a part of the Filipina exchange program, Merlita Gargula and Corazon Amurau. Tina, 23 at the time, shared a bedroom with three American nurses, while Cora and Morlita shared another. All of the rooms were upstairs and they didn't have a phone. Although the American nurses and the Filipina nurses never really grew close, they were amicable. And on the night of the Filipina's arrival, they threw a welcoming party for them and helped them grow accustomed to the city and the weather. Tina and the other Filipina nurses were often spotted heading to local shopping centers and taking field trips, but a majority of the time they were in the townhouse, writing letters to their families back home. Tina would talk about the weather and describe it as terrible, and would send money back home to help her family fix the house. But she said the work was easier than in the Philippine Islands, although their patients were, in quote, big as water buffalo. Tina was known for her cooking and the other Filipino nurses often ate dinner together at the townhouse and she would often make her famous pen shoot. I'm saying it right, which is a delicious combination of rice, noodles, vegetables, and pork. She was in bed on the night of July 13th, 1966 and heard a commotion. There was a man with a gun in the house. Tina, Merlita, and Cora were all huddled in a closet in their small room, holding the door shut. Several minutes went by when they finally heard a female voice urging them to come out of the closet. He's not gonna harm you. They reluctantly opened the door and Cora would be the only one to survive. Catherine Seniza Choi, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, wrote a book called Empire of Care, which is a history of the Filipino nurses in the United States. And she would go on to write extensively about the three Filipino nurses in that book and would teach her students about them and what they mean in both countries. She would state, for Filipinos and Filipino Americans who came of age during the 1960s, I think Gargulo and Pasión are remembered as nurses who encountered American violence and tragedy. And Amaral Amaral is remembered as a nurse who used her wits to survive.
0: All right, the next one we're going to be reading is for Pamela Lee Wilkening. Now, a few days before she died, Pam called to her mother or called her mother to say that she couldn't come visit that weekend. Her graduation from nursing school was less than a month away. Exams were coming up, and she needed to stay at her townhouse in the city to study. She never spoke to her mother again. In the townhouse's unofficial sorority, Pam was the quiet one, unlike several of her other housemates. She wasn't likely to be caught on camera dressing up in a cat costume, joking around the kitchen, dancing, so she wasn't really like that. A photo that appeared in Life magazine after the murders shows her sitting with three of her housemates. They're smiling and wearing regular clothes. She's in her nurse's uniform, gazing down. The image suggests who she was, serious and slightly removed from the fun. Dicton and the unidentified woman were not killed by Richard Speck. Pam had been quiet, studious, and decisive since she was a girl in South Suburban, Lansing. Her family, her father, John, a pipe fitter, her mother, Lena, a homemaker born in Germany, and her only sibling, Jack, lived in a small, one-story brick Cape Cod on Commercial Avenue. It was a close-knit community where almost no one locked their doors. Her childhood resume wasn't flashy. Brownie, Girl Scout, high school nursing club. At Thornton Fractional South High School, she attended almost every basketball and football game with her closest girlfriends, but she didn't play any sports. She worked part-time at a bakery. Once remarking on her diligence and studied temperament, her brother told her she'd make a good military nurse. Nursing school exposed Pam and her classmates to life's wide range of joy and trouble. By the time they were in their third year, they had helped deliver babies, treated sick children, and watched people die. As part of their psychiatric rotation, they dealt with mentally disturbed patients. During one of Pam's shifts, a patient slugged her. She hit her head against a brick wall and suffered a slight concussion. She returned to nursing undeterred among Pam's favorite pleasures was watching Jack who was seven years older race cars uh, was who was seven years older. I'm not sure where the race cars came from, but it's in there. So (laughs) on June, uh, let's see on June in 1966, when she was 20, she went to one of these races uh, with the race cars and afterwards waved goodbye see you next week he said the next time he saw her her body was on a gurney behind a window in the coroner's office jack wilkening is 79 now retired from his job as a standard oil cashier and when he agreed to talk about his sister he asked to meet at the lansing public library which used to be the indiana avenue school where he and pam attended first through fifth grades When he recalls the terrible summer of 1966, much of what he remembers is conspicuously small, and politicians delivering food to the wake, the time he spent unpacking the food, repacking it, a funeral parlor jammed with mourners, losing his parking spot as he carted all the food here and there, and the mail. He'll never forget the cards and letters that flooded in from the strangers all over the world. The mailman would bring them in boxes, he said. His mother filed them away neatly, along with the pictures of newspaper clippings. And for years, Pam's name, along with the uh, those other of her housemates, was in the paper two or three times a week, um, or it seemed to Jack at least, and always attached to the name of the man who killed her. News item. Richard Speck sentence. News. Speck's death sentence reversed. News. Another Speck parole hearing at Stateville Correctional Center. News. Richard Speck dies in prison of a heart attack the day before his 50th birthday. Speck's death came as a relief to Wilkening and to the families of the other women who he killed. No more parole hearings, no more fear that he might be released, and yet news of Speck continued to haunt them. In 1996, five years after he died, a video surfaced of Speck in prison, doing drugs and engaging in lewd acts with other prisoners. After it was aired on TV... Wilkening obtained a copy of the video. He watched it once and hurled it into a corner. Wilkening has had a full life, but he doesn't pretend the pain is gone or that his life ever returned to a true version of normal. He thinks of his sister every day, and he thinks about the family she might have had, wishes she could have met his two sons and daughters and eight grandchildren. I just would have liked her to see the kids, he said, and he cried. Jack Wilkening, brother of Pamela Wilkening, remembers his sister and the days surrounding her 1966 murder, along with seven other student nurses and nurses on Chicago South Side.
2: We'll move on to Merlita Gargulo. Born on September 1st, 1942, on the island of Mindoro, the seventh largest island in the Philippines. She would be the only one in her village to go to America. She was raised with eight younger siblings and was smart enough in school to be admitted to the nursing program at Arellano University in Manila. She would board a plane, I don't know why I can't say that fucking word. She would board a plane bound for Chicago with another exchange student, Corazon Amurao, in the spring of 1966. She had just met Corazon a month prior and the two would be destined to be roommates in the townhouse on Chicago's south side. 23-year-old Merlita was hardworking, shy, pretty, and blessed with a beautiful singing voice, and would often sing while doing dishes or the laundry. She earned $350 a month from South Chicago Community Hospital, and like most of the other Filipina exchange nurses, she sent a lot of the money back home. She also wrote a lot of letters, and in one letter she sent shortly before she died, she described her recent trip to Wisconsin. Well, it went fine. It was dizzying, exciting, and a wonderful weekend. But I still believe there's no place like home. In the townhouse, she was bunked with Cora Amarau and slept on the bottom bunk. That is where she was on the night of July thirteenth, 1966 when she heard a knock at the bedroom door. Cora, being the first of the residents to see Richard Speck and the only survivor, unlocked the door. When the bodies were flown back to Manila, they were greeted with more than 100 family and friends standing in the pouring rain. And among the mourners was an older, bald man from Indoro, Merlita's father.
0: All right, and the next one we're reading is for Marianne Jordan. Marianne Jordan grew up hearing her father's tales of her Irish grandmother, Grace. In the early 1900s, Grace Jordan was a high-ranking surgical nurse at the University of Michigan, and the stories of her accomplishments made Marianne think she could be a nurse too. Grace Jordan wasn't the only family member to stir Marianne's interest in nursing. There was also Billy. Billy marianne was the fourth of the six kids of philip and mary jordan billy was the youngest born with down syndrome from early childhood she connected with him in a unique way and he was and he was why she wanted to specialize in pediatric nursing she was great with him recalled their sister suzanne jordan morin always very playful and very compassionate billy loved her tremendously if you asked mary ann where she was from she'd give a classic southside answer naming not her neighborhood but her parish our lady of peace uh, our lady of peace she loved swimming ice skating and softball she played baseball in the alley badminton across the back fences and she roller skated in the basement of the family's three bedroom bungalow it was a kind of childhood that half a century later people look back on and call simpler innocent a time when city kids were raised to be independent and unafraid. But life wasn't all play. Mary, Marianne had family and responsibilities. At age 10, she walked her sister Suzanne to her first day of kindergarten. When her father was at work and her mother was taking care of the house and Billy, she took uh, Susan along while she ran family errands on 79th Street, where the shopkeepers knew her name. During the summers, she accompanied Billy to nearby Rainbow Beach, splashed with him in the water, hugged him a lot, and made him laugh. A boisterous laugh he copied from her, an impressive and brazen mimic. Marianne made everyone laugh around her. She had a wicked sense of Irish humor, and Marianne brought her Irish humor, her sense of duty, and her talent for friendship to nursing school and to the townhouse on East 100th Street. On a trip to Florida, with her classmates not long before she died, she sent a postcard home to report that immediately after their plane landed, they had gone to Massachusetts. In one photo that captures her impish side, she's tucked in bed with a housemate, the covers pulled up to her chin, her hair in a shower cap, and by July of 1966, however, Marianne, who was 20, had moved out of the townhouse and back into the family bungalow. She was home on the night of July 13th, when her brother Phil stopped by, Phil was engaged to one of Marianne's classmates, Suzanne Ferris, who we covered a little bit earlier, who still lived in the townhouse, and Suzanne was with him that evening. Now come spend the night at the townhouse, Suzanne suggested to Marianne. They could talk about the wedding, and so shortly after 12:15, Marianne and Suzanne climbed the stairs to Suzanne's bedroom. Richard Speck was waiting. When Suzanne Jordan Morin, who now lives in Chicago's suburbs, thinks back to the day her family heard the news, her mind lands on a vivid memory of Billy. Billy, the spirited boy who rarely spoke more than two words at a time, blurted three. Marianne's dead. Billy died at 42, with Suzanne as his caretaker. Jordan Morin, who was 15, when Marianne died has never before spoken publicly about his sister's de- her sister's death, and she, def- she doesn't talk easily about it now. Only one of her siblings, a brother, is still alive. Her brother Phil, who lost both his sister and his fiance on that July night, died at 64. For her to discuss an event she calls still unbelievable is an act of faith, one she commits only because she'd like the world to pause and think about Marianne and her friends, let people know who they were. She said, "What wonderful people they were." And the photo that she and the photo that she cherishes and still holds on, holds on to dearly is one her father captured on a Super 8 movie camera, which shows a sunny Easter morning. Suzanne is three, and Marianne is eight. And they're walking home from church, dressed in matching blue coats and hats and black patent leather shoes, each clutching an Easter basket. And they are young and together and happy.
2: Move on to Gloria Jean Davy. Gloria was born in 1944. At the same hospital where she would eventually study nursing. She was the second of six siblings, and raised not far from the townhouse where she would later die. Her dad, Charles, who was a former marine, raised his daughters with the same expectations as his son. It was almost like he had five boys," said Laura Davy Civic, Gloria's sister, who is now a teacher in a Houston suburb. Laura would describe her sister as driven, independent, intelligent, headstrong poised, creative, and snippy when she didn't like what you were doing. Gloria started college at Northern Illinois University as an English major, but would later switch to nursing. And in 1965, she would become president of the Student Nurses Association of Illinois. Now, Gloria stayed at the same townhouse as the other student nurses for South Chicago Community Hospital, and it was often a mess. You know, between studying and working long hours at the hospital, it became increasingly difficult to keep the house clean. So she enlisted the help of her little sister, Lori. And she paid her a dollar or two to ride her bike over to the townhouse and clean it up, taking care of the dishes, picking up clothes that were scattered around the living room. And Lori felt pretty cool that she's a part of the world of her older sister. And as they were snuggling... The phone rang in the nearby den. It was Gloria, who was 22, calling from the townhouse to say that her fiance had just dropped her off. I'm in, said Gloria, who phoned her mother every night to say she was back and safe. I'm home. It was Wednesday, July 13th, shortly after 11 p.m. Richard Speck was already upstairs. The next time Lori heard the phone ring, it was morning. Her dad was on the line and he had turned on the TV news in Pennsylvania. Not long afterward, Arlene Davy, sitting on the floor, hugging her knees to her chest, made an announcement to her daughters. Gloria's been murdered, Lori remembers her saying. A lot of people will be here shortly, girls. We need to clean the house. Before long, the Davy home was packed with people, and every room, it seemed, was packed with roses. So many roses that the scent made Lori sick. After that day, Arlene Davy was different. Always a quiet woman, she grew quieter. We kind of lost her, Lori said. She was not the same person. He killed more than eight people. On August 7th, 1966, when Lori Davy, 11 at the time, walked across the stage to accept her sister's diploma her father's orders refreshed her mind everywhere she looked she saw starched white uniforms starched white caps the meticulously dressed 1966 graduating class of south chicago community hospital school of nursing minus 6 sorry this is hard a <laughs> <clears throat> camera caught the moment a pretty girl in a plaid dress with a peter pan collar reaching with white gloves for the document her sister had worked so hard to earn what the cameras couldn't catch were the girl's thoughts the confusion she felt at the spectacle of all these other graduates why were they here and her sister wasn't the camera also catches the misery on those women's faces Lori didn't cry. She walked off the stage, shoulders back, carrying the diploma dated July 14, 1966. The day of her sister's death had been recorded as her graduation day. At her father's urging, Lori considered becoming a nurse, but she finally told him that she couldn't. She was just too emotional for the job. After she married and had three children, she told her kids that Aunt Gloria had died in a car crash She perpetuated the ruse until the day her daughter, then in high school, was watching a TV show about Speck, and the woman he murdered, and the families he left behind. Did I just see Grandpa on the television? Her daughter asked. Lori realized it was time to tell the truth. In the Davy family, according to Lori, grieving openly for Gloria was considered weakness, especially by her father, the military man. Only recently, since Don Schmael could get in touch with her about a 50th anniversary commemoration for the women, has Lori let herself believe that it's okay to remember and it's okay to cry. Like Schmael, she talks about opening the box of her sister's life. And now that it's open, she thinks, wow. Wow, this was my sister. Look at her. I want you to look at her eyes. Gloria's brothers and three sisters are still alive. One went into nursing, and Lori has come to believe that Gloria's death prepared her to handle anything and to see, in some useful ways, the possibility of death in everything. Their mother eventually forgave Richard Speck and urged her children to do the same. Don't eat, she told them. If you live your life in hatred and anger, you'll lose more than Gloria. Lori tries to live by her mother's words. She still can't stand the smell of roses. Oh, my
1: God.
0: Yeah, rough man.
1: He, he just makes you realize, like he didn't kill, like like, like uh, she said at the end. He didn't. He killed more than eight people that night. Mm-hmm. He killed. He killed a little bit of everybody that they had ever known. Yeah and it just dude i'm like it's hard to talk like these were real people with real lives with he cut their life short for no reason mm-hmm. at all and it's just it's horrible and will i know you're an ems i know you have plenty of nurse friends i'm sure and and my wife oh, yeah. she works she works in the er she, all, all her friends are nurses and i can't imagine what that would be like you know mm-hmm. so but you know like we said uh, for nurses appreciation week you know We see you, and we thank you for the last year, especially with the pandemic and everything going on. And, uh, yeah, just got to remember that it's not all about the murder or the killers. These people's real lives. Mm -hmm. And they should have a say in what um, is portrayed in the media. And when you Google something, it shouldn't be all about Richard Speck.
0: Yeah.
1: But we do have to continue the story guys um, yeah, got to listen to me choked down. <laughs> yeah that was open, hard openly yeah, open cry on a podcast Jesus I know I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't even reading it but I was just like I, I had to like mute myself because I was like sniffling I was like <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right so like I said unfortunately the story must continue so yep. uh, on July 11th Richard spent his morning at the Union Hall waiting for a ship and killed time by playing cards with other hopeful seamen Around noon, Speck got bored and asked around for a rooming house. It was told about a flop house named Pauline's. When he first got there, he was told that no rooms were available, but he was allowed to leave his belongings and wash up. After this, he was off to a local tavern called the Rafter Lounge around 1.30pm. He struck up a conversation with the bartender and told him that he had to catch a boat at 230 But around 2 after chugging a beer, he loudly says... Fuck it, I'm not going. <laughs> Finally, at 3.30, he returned to Pauline's, but still, there were no rooms available, but Speck manages to sweet-talk his way into letting him stay on like the enclosed patio. So now that he had secured a place to sleep for the night, he set out for the local bars again, this time landing at Anne's Tavern. Around 12.30 a.m., he drunkenly stumbled his way back to Pauline's, but this time, he was told that someone had shipped out and that he could have his room. On July 12th, July 12th was a hot fucking day. And actually, this is one of the hottest summers on record in Chicago that this happened. And um, But luckily, Richard Speck finally got a call for position on a ship called the Sinclair Great Lakes. But the ship was docked half an hour away. He managed to convince a small Italian man named Bargellini. To give him a ride half an hour later richard was eating a hot meal aboard the ship feeling pretty confident about his position but it turns out the union had sent him as a backup in case the guy they actually wanted who was much more qualified than he was didn't show up but he did so richard speck was allowed to finish his meal but as soon as he was done he was escorted off of the ship The same little Italian gave him a ride back to Union Hall, even though Bargellini told him it was closed, Speck insisted that's where he wanted to go. During the ride, Speck, who was loudly talking to himself and was clearly pissed off about getting his position taken from him, said,
0: Oh, hell, I'm going to New Orleans.
1: Bargellini ended up dropping him off at a block east of the Union Hall at a tasty freeze at 5.30 p.m., this Tasty Freeze was a frequent hangout for the nurses who lived at the townhomes. At this point, the ticking time bomb that is Richard Speck is seconds away from exploding. As Speck made his way to the Union Hall, he noticed some commotion coming from behind one of the nurses' townhomes. As he walked by, a student nurse named Pamela Wilkinson was being picked up for a blind date. And the rest of the nurses came out to catch a glimpse of her date. This all honestly sounds so 60s, and I love it. It's fantastic. It's just like, like oh, everyone's- who the lucky yeah. guy? Like, oh. just, that kind of, just like peeking out to the windows, like just being super in each other's business, you yeah. know, just friends, you know, just yeah. roommate friends in a, you know, a dormitory. Yeah, it,
2: it, it cracked me up earlier. Um, Brian, you talking about like the, the hair curlers and stuff. It just reminded me yeah. of Grease. It just reminded yeah, me exactly. of Grease so much, like them getting ready and the hair oh, curlers For and sure, stuff. dude, yeah.
1: So one particular nurse caught Speck's eye because she was wearing a bright yellow dress. Speck kept walking on his mission to find a new place to stay for the night, but he had no luck and spent the night near the Union Hall on a bench in Luella Park, which happened to be directly behind the nurse's townhome. Like, all that separated the park from the townhomes was like a small metal fence and a small parking lot. Speck barely slept as he lay there fuming about being kicked off the ship. On July 13th, he found a gas station that let him clean up in their restroom and made a beeline to the union hall to give them a piece of his mind, but they still weren't open, so he sat there waiting until he saw a fellow shipmate walk up and he took this opportunity to ask the other guy to watch his his bags while he went and got himself a drink. The dude agreed and watched Speck walk over to the fountain in Luella Park that was directly behind the nurse's townhome. I mean, it was feet away from the back of the townhome. And as he was watching, he noticed Speck stand there at the fountain and look directly into the big window of the nurse's townhome for a minute. Then he slowly turned around and walked back. Now that the union hall was open, he was yelling at the dispatcher about sending him to a job that was not for him until he was finally asked to leave. Richard had called his sister and Gene Thornton to complain about the shit that the Union Hall had pulled on him, and they came down to talk to him. As they sat there in Gene Thornton's car, they happened to be parked directly across the street from the nurse's home at 2319. Uh, At the end of the conversation, he managed to get $25 more from the Thorntons, and he was left by himself again. Which, by the way, in 1966, $25 is about $205 today. Wow. Like yeah. a days. Like a
2: couple days salary.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I think the um the annual median income in nineteen sixty six was like eight thousand dollars a year. I think the the Filipino oh, nurses who shit. actually the Filipino like, nurses who actually worked, I think they made three hundred and yeah, I think it was three fifty dollars three fifty a month. month. Yeah. Three fifty a month, yeah. So uh Spec waited yeah, so Speck waited at the union hall until about 10.30 that morning when he grew tired of waiting for the ship. He said, oh, this is a blue part, but I forgot to put it. This is you, Brian. Oh, shit. Okay,
0: fuck it. I'm tired of waiting around for the ship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, wasn't, you, I wasn't ready for that. So I forgot to change the color. <laughs> <laughs> Even though this was, 10.30 was like the time of day he was most likely going to find work. After asking around about other flop houses, he was directed this time to the Shipyard Inn. With $25 in his pocket, he made his way to Pete's Tavern, where he bragged about being fired for stabbing a shipmate, even though that was a lie. He took off to find a room at the Shipyard Inn, where he paid for his room for the week and was shown to room number seven. He cleaned up a bit and ended up at St. Pete's to drink, uh, where... He ran around at this point, like he's just losing his shit. He's unhinged and yeah, he's, he's just drinking, he, just
2: drinking, drinking,
1: drinking oh, constantly. He's constantly <laughs> drunk at this point. I think from this point on, he's not sober at any single point. And I even think he's got some drugs like in his system. Yeah. Just telling um, stories to everybody. Yeah, so, There's a ship that disappeared. Did the era, the SS. Our, yeah. Did
0: you hear stout, the guy? <laughs> the <laughs> SS Eldridge disappeared and yeah. then reappeared. I'm telling you. I
1: saw it. I know I what was I saw. I that with my own eyes. Goddamn ghost ship. <laughs> yeah. So after he got the room, he cleaned up a bit and ended up at St. Pete's to drink. And like I said, he was just being a weirdo and telling lies and tall tales to anyone and everyone that would listen. He left the bar only after a 53-year-old named Ella Mae Hooper left. Speck had been following her around the bar. Ella Mae unknowingly led Speck to a different bar, where she had a few more drinks, and when she finally left that bar, Speck was close behind. About a block from the shipyard inn, Speck asked her, Where are you going? <laughs> a little more drunk next time. Okay, all yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So, LMA did not answer him. I want answers. Still, she didn't say anything. Instead, she just picked up the pace. She could hear Speck behind her clearly, not taking the hint, and he was asking her to go get a drink with him. But she said, "No, I just want to go home." Which Spec responded with the super normal response of, "What if I force you to have a drink?" Oh, honey, nobody forces me to have a drink. If I want one,
2: I just take one. Speck responded firmly. You are going to the
0: shipyard and to have a drink. I have a knife stuck in your back. You don't see anybody around, do you? I could stab you right here. No one would know who did it. Do what I tell you and I won't hurt you. Uh, that's actually terrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's actually not okay at all yeah of course yeah. Uh, when, when he finally got her up to his room he asked her a bunch of weird questions about her family if she had kids where she lived and even if she liked young men he said he wasn't going to rape her and kept telling her that he wouldn't hurt her as long as she did what he wanted like he kept repeating this and i think ellen may hooper says she he, she thinks he said it like 20 times he wasn't going to hurt her oh, wow. wasn't do anything. like he just kept repeating it in that Drunk Southern drawl, you know. Yeah. um So about oh yeah, I, I forgot. He he said he wasn't gonna rape her because he planned on paying her, so it's not technically rape. Mm. Ah. So about two minutes of sex later, he <laughs> is... <laughs> just a little pump and dump. <laughs> two pump jump. He's two he's here for show? a good time. He's here for a good time, not a long time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. He got what he wanted. That's all that matters. And that's yep. that's, the, that's the truth. He got what he wanted, so fuck everything else. Exactly. So, so like I said, about two minutes of sex later, he told her to get her clothes on. He handed her a bag with money as payment, and he followed her out the building where he forced her to go east and he would go west. When Ella May got home to see how much he paid her for the sex, she found three warm beers in the bag and zero money. And her twenty-two caliber pistol was gone. Damn.
2: Three warm beers, huh? Yeah, Three warm that beers. A... <laughs>
1: oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, a psychopath. That's yeah. what I expect for two minutes of sex. Three warm beers. Yeah,
2: just put them in the fridge and they're cool again. <laughs>
1: no, not even cold. <laughs> <laughs> so later that night at the tavern located at the shipyard inn, Richard Speck was at the bar and he was looking for trouble at this point. Like he is anybody come get it. Like he, he is ready to just. Fuck someone days up. Mm-hmm. Fuck someone's day up. So someone days up, eh, right? Yeah, yeah someone yeah. days up. Fuck, I'm gonna fuck someone's days up. up. <laughs> fuck days up, boy. So there was two dudes <laughs> 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 uh, who were shooting pool. Uh, they were shooting pool while their buddy sat at a nearby booth watching them play. And when the guy in the booth made eye contact with Spec, Spec just sat there staring at him menacingly. And not being one to take shit, like, this guy's actually ballsy. Like, I respect yeah. this guy. And, and not being one to take shit, the guy asked Spec if he knew him or if he had a problem. And Speck just sat there quietly, just never stopped staring at the dude. So the guy, he moved out of the booth, and when Speck flashed a pistol at him, this pissed the guy off. And the guy just made his way over to Speck. And that's when Speck noticed that the guy had a broken leg and was in a cast. It But... A guy sends like flashes a pistol at you. My reaction is not to approach him, right, <laughs> especially
2: yeah. if I have a fucking broken leg and in the yeah. cast. And I just hobble my way over to you, holding. A I think I think this story. A gun. It takes This like five story more than anything.
1: There. Yeah, this story more than anything shows you the rugged area that they're in. Yeah, South Chicago, yeah. Southside Chicago is fucking oh, rough, fuck dude. Now. Yeah, Chicago. You gonna flash a pistol at me? <laughs> hey, you're back to my lawn. <laughs> oh, this like so it's weird <laughs> because uh richard speck seemed let down by this because richard speck loves having the upper hand which is why he flashed the pistol and he also had his pocket knife on him so that gave him a bunch of confidence but at the same time he's not gonna fight a guy in a cast like that's not manly you know what yeah. i mean like mm-hmm. it, it's not oh that's him, where he draws he, the line yeah i guess because if he were to beat the guy up he's like oh you're gonna beat up a guy with a cast like you know
0: yeah it wasn't much of a challenge for him
1: yeah, so he, even though he likes having the upper hand, I, I think he doesn't want to be known as that guy. So Speck offered to buy a round for the, for the cast guy and his friends as an apology for pulling out the gun. Um, he ended up having friendly conversation with the guys and told them about his ex-wife and how he stabbed a guy at his last job. You know, <laughs> like, normal, normal stuff. guy stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> just, a guy. stabbed guy. I just stabbed him <laughs> with my yeah, knife. So, this I knife. Yeah, sorry,
0: <laughs> sorry, I showed you my gun.
2: Was I don't what I, I was thinking.
1: Sh- and I, uh, sh- I stabbed him in the belly button. <laughs> the belly button. <laughs> so after those guys left, he seemed to try to make friends with anyone in his, his in his vicinity, and he struck up conversations about all of his bullshit. And remember, I said that he's. A dumb person, but when it comes to crime, he's kind of like a, a, savant. a smart. Yeah, savant. Thank you, a savant. Because think about what he's doing. He's putting himself smack dab in the middle of this bar, striking up a conversation with everybody. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw him at this bar, yeah. and everyone knew him. Alibi. Hmm. Which actually, unfortunately, yeah. somehow works. Um. Uh. So, anyways. While Speck was having super drunk conversations with random pub goers, Corazon Amaral was getting ready for bed at the townhome numbered 2319, and she was about to turn out the lights in her room when her roommate, Merlita, asked her to leave the light on so she can finish her prayer. Cora got into her bunk and fell asleep. Just before 10:30 p.m., Richard Speck left the bar and went upstairs to change into a black shirt, black pants, and he rounded his outfit out with a black jacket and black shoes it took Speck about half an hour to walk the almost one and a half miles to luella park where he darted across a small parking lot in the shadows and used his pocket knife to pry open the back window and he slid his hand in to unlock the back door
2: yeah it's a mile and a half of drunken stumbling i, I don't
1: think he, i don't think he was i don't think, think it was sh- i think it was a show no. He, like I said, he's he's a dumb fucking person, but he planned this out somewhat. So huh. Because there's a couple, the people who were playing pool with him, they they said that he had spilled a drink but when he did it, it didn't seem like it was an accident. Uh, it didn't seem like it was on purpose because he was messy. It just seemed like it was an accident and he actually cleaned it up himself and was like on it, you know. And he actually like, he ran the pool table for a bit. Like he had oh, his wits about him. Yeah, he was a pool shark but he had enough uh, dexterity to win a bunch, you know? Oh shit. So it's not like he was like sloppy drunk. I think he was putting that image out there. Got it. So yeah, he slid his hand in to unlock the back door. Cora Amaral was awakened by four knocks on her bedroom door. And she describes these knocks as like normal knocks, not hard, you know, just someone normally, um, knocking on your door. Mm -hmm. She opened her eyes and she noticed that the light was still on, and her clock was showing that it was 11 p.m. She got up and walked to the door. She unlocked it and began to open it, when suddenly the door was opened by force. Standing at the door was a six-foot-tall man with a pockmarked face wearing all black, holding a pistol. Cora stood frozen in fear as you heard the man ask, Where are your companions? And suddenly, Speck grabbed her. Join us next week for the conclusion <laughs> oh, of Richard Speck and the Crime of the Century. You say this is a two-part episode. This is a two-part episode. It's a two-part, oh. two-hour each episode. Two pump yep. and
2: jump. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna fucking pump and dump it, baby.
0: <laughs> Damn, dude, that's fucking crazy. So, um, yeah, next week we'll be um,
1: concluding this Make... one, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Next week, we talk about the murders, the chase, the court trial, and prison life. Okay,
0: wow. Well, All right. yeah, what a crazy fucking dude. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, thank you guys for joining
1: us. Uh, Octavia, you yeah. got anything? Uh, the socials, Bloodthirsty Times, uh, reach us at bloodthirstypod at gmail.com. Send us a message on anchor.fm. And we love you. Happy Nurses Week. I love you. Happy Nurses, Happy week. Nurses week. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. No you. Bye. No you. No you.
2: Now you, Not you. Mao, okay, goodbye. Now you, right, Bye.
1: Mao, bye. Happy Nurses Week. Hang up. Hang up. No, you hang okay, up. No, you hang up.
2: Hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, bye.